It's being recorded. Yeah, yeah, you want to acknowledge that it's being recorded. Absolutely, because it is. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Today is the second Saturday of the month, and we are debuting a brand new show on the Chef AJ Broadcasting Network, and you're going to be so exciting. We have a legend and an upcoming rising star pairing together for a show called Moving Medicine Forward. Please welcome the beloved icon, Dr. Michael Clapper, and the soon-to-be beloved icon, Dr. Zach Burns. Thank you so much. This is such a great pairing of the old guard and the new guard, if you will. Well, thanks, AJ. It's just great uh, to, to be with you and uh, and your viewers. And, uh, and uh, Dr. Burns, Dr. Zach Burns, who will introduce himself in a minute, uh, has uh, been working with our organization for a couple of years now, and I'm just so excited to have a uh, uh, to have a young, bright, uh, and nutritionally aware physician on the team. Uh, he he really does uh, represent the hope for the future, and he's fun to work with. He's a great guy, so uh, you'll learn that as uh, as our session. Uh, progresses today. Dr. Well, Burns. Yeah, Dr. Burns has been on the show before, and, and I love what you say, nutritionally aware physician. That's almost an oxymoron, isn't it? it <laughs> yes, unfortunately it is, and uh, we're working to correct that, absolutely. Yeah, so Dr. Burns, uh, where did you get all this passion for, for nutrition, just even in medical school? So I went plant-based for the animals, and that happened in college. I just learned about factory farming and what was going on out there, but I was already pre-med. I loved medicine. I felt like my skills would, would work best in this field. And so I thought about how to bring the two issues together. I delved into the science of nutrition with Dr. Dr. Clapper's help, of course. And I saw, I was just so disturbed by, by the trifecta of issues. So, the environmental degradation we're seeing today, uh, the state of chronic disease in developed nations, and the plight of innocent animals on these industrial factory farms. And I thought I could maybe make my best impact uh, as a plant-based physician. So here I am. Well, it's wonderful to see you both. So. You are going to be talking today about why doctors don't learn nutrition in medical school. Indeed, we both have firsthand knowledge of that, unfortunately. And yes, we both have some ideas to, to share about that. And we, we all, um, as physicians and patients alike, I hear there's this tacit echo, if you will, uh, in, in, in background of societal interactions with their doctors. Why doesn't my doctor know anything about nutrition? And uh, and it permeates every medical visit, whether it's spoken or not. As the patient walks out of the clinic and gets in their car, hey, my doctor didn't tell me what to eat. Uh, and the subject never really comes up. And often the doctor is overweight and diabetic, it is high blood pressure, and nobody is mentioning food in any way, shape, or form. And it's gotten to the point where uh, uh, something needs to be done about it, and that's why Dr. Burns and I are, are working together. Um, Dr. Burns, when did you make, uh, I mean, the, the issue of food. Uh, when, when, I was, when I was doing anesthesia, 
Uh, you're very concerned about you give them intravenous drug, pentothal or uh, fentanyl, and uh, you want to visualize that this drug at a certain level is coursing through the tissues in the bloodstream uh, and producing an effect. And we know this very precisely. But then three times a day as we eat these meals, it pours through our tissues, have these profound effects, and no one's paying any attention to that. And, and it started dawning on me that food is the most powerful drug of all, and, uh, and it has great uh, manifestations in health and disease, etc. We can talk about that, but when did you make the, the food disease connection? Uh, I, I know the animal one, is. I understand where that came from. As a physician, when did you make the connection with food and disease? I think it must have been before medical school. Uh, it certainly wasn't in the classroom. Um, it was, you know, I was working at a community health center with a really disadvantaged population in East Boston, Massachusetts. And they were struggling with the, the diseases of the West, the hypercaloric food, processed food, poverty, all these different issues coming together so that their rates of what we call diabetes were through the roof, heart disease, all of the complications and the struggles associated with just being sick, being unnecessarily preventably ill. And I was really horrified by that and wanted to, you know, but it, it was obvious that food was playing a role. Many, many of these patients were, were immigrants from Central and South America where their former diet had been normal uh, right, a like traditional diet, which is just naturally more plant-based. Then they come here, um, and we see in these different studies that like, once you adopt the Western diet from moving to the U.S. or peer nations, your your uh, baseline health declines pretty rapidly. So that's maybe one of the first places I started to make the connection. And then I was watching documentaries like. Caspiracy, what the health? I was I discovered um, Dr. Clapper himself and and his colleagues, and I said maybe you know there's a path to maybe I can help shed light on this connection between diet and disease and the power of food and healing uh, and getting people to the best versions of themselves. So you are a third year resident in training in the Department of Family Practice at Providence Hospital Brown, slash Brown University's um, teaching program there. So you're just, uh, when do you finish your your residency altogether? When do you finish this third year and take your exams? Uh, in, end of June, 2024. Of, okay, yeah. And you'll be a bright, shining, board-certified family physician. In your four years of medical school, in your three years of family practice residency, has any professor or chief resident uh, or any senior teacher or mentor sat you down and say, listen, you're going out in an outpatient clinic and you're going to see a steady stream of patients, overweight, hypertensive, diabetic, clogged up and inflamed. Let's talk about why they're bringing their bodies to you in such a state, uh, namely uh, what these people are eating and uh, and how we can improve that. Has uh, has nutrition been introduced in anywhere in your basic sciences or in your clinical sciences uh, during your seven years now of medical training? Um, virtually no. So it, I've done a lot of nutrition 
education. It was almost all extracurricular. It was sort of self-made. I dug it out on my own, sought it out on my own. And so um, starting in med school, it's, it was the traditional, and I'm curious to see how it matches up with your med school experience almost 50 years earlier. Um, I am a little bit worried that it was that it probably is the same. So we learned about nutrition in the context of biochemistry. So we're learning about vitamin deficiencies. Um, what if you don't have enough B1 or B2 or B3? And um, th there, are, there are awful medical conditions from vitamin deficiencies. Have we ever really seen them in the West? No, if you ask any seasoned clinician, they haven't seen it. They've never seen a protein deficiency in the absence of um, certain, you know, very specific, if you have end state terminal cancer, right, or a certain nephropathy where you're spilling protein in the urine, you don't see deficiencies of protein or virtually any vitamin. Um, and and this, these are tragic conditions uh, of, of the, you know, underdeveloped world. But so we, so why fixate on those? If you're doing a global health fellowship, like let's really address that. Otherwise we need, we need to be learning about the nutritional status of this, the typical patient who, who will come see us. No, that didn't happen within our curriculum, but um, you know, we did a lot outside. So in med school, this is actually the story of Dr. Clapper and I meeting. I, I launched a student organization called Plant-Based Healthcare to fill this void of nutrition education. And I invited Dr. Clapper to speak. We said, we don't have any cash, sorry. <laughs> We're a student group. He said, that's fine, um, I'm coming. And I mean, we had this awesome event, hundreds of people, and it was very inspiring. I think it shaped some careers. And, uh, you know, and then we sat down at a picnic table afterwards with some clementines and unsalted almonds. And we and we made a we made a plan, um, and you know I think at the time you were you were eager to have someone inside um, the, the the medical training system so we could tap into these different student groups and network with schools around the country, um, which we've done. Uh, yes, and uh, we, we can loop back and talk about the, the birth and the, the function of our organization, Moving Medicine Forward, trying to remedy this, this black hole of, of nutrition unawareness. Uh, because, as you said, um, not much has changed. I graduated from the University of Illinois College of Medicine, a premier medical school in the United States, uh, in 1972. And during my four years, absolutely, uh, nutrition was introduced as part of the biochemistry year. And I went through Rafelson and Binkley's textbook to learn about scurvy and pellagra and beriberi and these various vitamin deficiencies, of which I've never seen any case of which. Uh, and um, then uh, the... Uh, uh, the Use of food uh, as as uh, to first of all the concept that these diseases that I was learning about in pathology class, uh, high blood pressure, diabetes, etc. One that they were reversible. No one even mentioned that you can make these diseases go away. They were clearly just presented as unidirectional. They just all get worse. 
That's right. If you don't talk to your patients about what they're eating, that's what you're going to see. And that's what they were seeing, but it doesn't have to be that way. But the uh, one, that these are reversible diseases at all, and two, that a plant-based diet is the key to reversing these diseases. No one mentioned a thing about that. 50 years later, did anyone mention to you that uh, these diseases are reversible and that a plant-based diet is the key to reversing these diseases? Is, uh, seriously, did, did that percolate through at, in any way, shape, or form in your, your recent training? So not officially in the curriculum, right? We we have reasonable teachers, and they, you know, and there's nothing against these teachers. Um, sometimes the issue is they didn't learn it, they didn't learn about nutrition in medical school themselves. They're not comfortable, um, really, providing like a, a, a real position on um, what to eat, <laughs> what to perhaps avoid, how much, other aspects of lifestyle. So the lifestyle and medicine is a new field. It's sort of an ancient field, right? But in this codified modern way, it's legitimized. We have data where, you know, it's, it's being um, espoused all over the world. This is a new phenomenon. So no, usually my wonderful teachers just didn't have much experience with lifestyle medicine. And um, I think that's changing. So well, let's talk about that. You had a, um, you mentioned in one of our correspondences, you have some very important points here, uh, important, relevant points. And, um, um, and you maybe you want to go through them or, or we can, uh, we can talk about them. There's 200, there are 200 medical schools and schools of, of uh, osteopathy uh, in the United States, 200 med schools. Um in 1985, the National Academy of Science recommended that at least during these four years of med school, the students encounter 25 honest hours of nutrition education. Um, 25 years later, um, only 27%, uh, so maybe 50 of these schools uh, out of 200 met that recommendation. Um most students uh, receive an average of 11 hours of nutrition through an entire medical program. And again, um, it's either biochemistry or culinary cooking classes. Um, uh, we were both- and also, Go ahead. One point on that statistic is, they, this was from a survey and they found that these 11 hours, remember that the minimum guideline was to have 25 hours of nutrition throughout a four year medical education. Um, they found it was just this average of 11, 11 hours. And much of those were from extracurricular activities, like the plant-based health cares or programming that say a student group like ours was doing. So that's good. But if you don't have that set up on campus, you'll miss out. It's not in the curriculum. There's no mandatory learning. There's no accountability. There's no testing for the knowledge that may be life or death, right? I, I like to say when I'm advocating for this stuff, you know, let's learn about lifestyle medicine like people's lives depend on it. Um, they do. So, yes. um, yeah, I want to drill down on that. Why do you think this is? Seriously, 
Well, we both are in awe of medical science's ability to tease out these really abstruse mechanisms uh, as far as inhibiting enzyme function and designing antibodies to that inhibit a particular gene. And they can identify a genetic mismatch on gene A21 on chromosome 13 with precision. But the thought that cheeseburgers and pepperoni pizzas and buffalo wings might be clogging up their patients' arteries well, somehow this is this is too abstruse a uh, a concept for for the for the researchers or the educators to let in. Why do you think that seriously? Because uh, it's blatant. You can see the blood thick with fat after eating a cheeseburger. Why doesn't anybody look at this? What is the resistance to open that door, mark nutrition education, and incorporate it uh, into the medical school curriculum? What do you think the resistance comes from? I think there are personal so barriers and then sort of societal barriers. On the personal level, um, again, physicians don't learn about this in medical school, so they might not be comfortable teaching it to the next generation. They don't know which food. So, you know, we have, we have this vague sense that a cheeseburger is maybe less healthy, but they haven't really read the data around which eating patterns are associated with dramatic re reduction in cardiometabolic disease then they may not be comfortable really teaching that. I think um, also, perhaps cynically, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, most medical professionals are eating the same Western diet um, that we're talking about. And so it's kind of awkward to make a recommendation that you're not personally following, right? It, it feels Ooh. hypocritical. It just doesn't feel good. There's that dissonance. And so I think people, we're, we're, we're sort of, we're, um, we, we avoid that cognitive dissonance whenever possible because of the discomfort. I think there are some barriers in the clinic. So um, people are sensitive about these topics. So if we're talking about their cholesterol or their weight, I think sometimes doctors want to just avoid that. So it's, 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 too, um, it's too volatile. Let's just avoid that topic. There are time constraints based on the, the, the modern uh, medical model, you got a 15 minute visit. So it's difficult to incorporate dietary counseling. And we haven't yet had, you know, widespread insurance coverage of dietitians and nutritionists. Um, and so those, those are sorts of barriers on, on the, on the, in, in the, in the clinic itself. Then you have the big picture barriers um, which I think are really doing the most work. And I, I think that life, without sort of industry influence, and I'll elaborate on that, without that, we would have seen lifestyle medicine take hold decades ago. But its, but, but its success is being actively impeded by different, different you know, the, the very lucrative industries that are in reality uh, benefiting from the proliferation of chronic disease. So namely the pharmaceutical industry, uh, hospitals, um, even insurance. And that one's a little more complicated because it's sort of counterintuitive, but I think it's really easy when we illustrate the picture of <laughs> chronic disease meds, it becomes, I think, more clear. I, th I think that's an important piece when we teach about food as medicine, 
because people wonder really if this is so powerful why why doesn't hasn't it why is it so fringe still and i think once we explain why um in all these all these sort of monetary pressures that have impeded progress it makes more sense and they say oh you know it lends credibility to our cause uh, absolutely. The um, so what you're saying basically, there's a lot of people, big entrenched interests, who are making a lot of money off of the current system. Um, the insurance companies make money off every stent that's placed, every band aid that that's open. Uh, the hospitals make money off of these procedures when the patient's on the operating table. Now the drug companies are selling lots of medications from you know to from before the patient enters the hospital, in the hospital, after the hospital. So the drug companies like it, the current model. Um, and I'm not saying anybody is cynically, aggressively saying, let's make people sick so we get more money. Um, there, there's no venal malice behind it, I, I won't say. But um, the... Uh, the, the a lot of people make a lot of money off the current system, and and they think, well, if everybody got healthy and nobody needed stents and operations, what's going to happen to my income? And there's a then their gut gets a little tight, and there are resistance kind of digging their heels a bit. Well, uh, and then uh, we see the big media machine uh, and the PR gear start turning and. And anyone who advocates a healthier diet, whatever, out comes the big gun. Oh, they're, they label them, they're extreme and they're radical and they're uh, out of the mainstream and pe people will never do it. And and you and, and, and those are the labels that people apply to it in, in their head. And so it doesn't go anywhere. And, and again, much to the uh, delight of the people making all the money off the current system. And it's a it's a formidable it's a Goliath you know that is a formidable foe uh, and it's human nature um, and people like their cheeseburgers and necessarily the food industry has been uh, fiendishly effective at designing these hyper palatable uh, food substances full of salt and sugar and fat that oh taste delicious when you bite into them and people don't want to give that up and but meanwhile you and I as physicians we see. Uh, the effects on the human body from this abnormal food stream and it blows them up and clogs them up and inflames them and makes them diabetic. And then they say, doctor, doctor, save me. And the thing that would save them is the same food stream that the gorillas uh, eat, a uh, whole food, plant-based food stream. They don't develop diabetes. They don't develop clogged arteries. But uh, yeah, but you can't say that. It's, it's gotten so bizarre. Uh, you know, again, you either get labeled as extreme or you say you're fat shaming or um, the uh, uh, and, and, and I watch people go through the Ozempic and the drugs that they'll do anything except look at what they're eating. And uh, so let me inject this that changes my brain chemistry. Let me. Uh, uh, you know, fill my belly up with these these phony foods. All they need to do is uh, uh, is change to a whole food, plant based diet, and they get lean and healthy. And yet, it's a tough sell. It's a funny thing these, these humans <laughs> when it comes to. I want to go, I wanna uh, go, go back to, to a couple of things that you're pointing out: the the physiology okay. of food. I think we should get into, and also okay. 
the 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 modern clinical trial model. I think we we need to talk about those. But I just I want to paint this picture. Sometimes it's hard to imagine um, what what these entrenched interests are up to. But a couple of things to illustrate it. So you know, in the '90s, there was a massive public health push to reduce uh, tobacco use. Right? It was largely successful. It's considered a, a big public health victory. But we're still. I mean, if you go into any pharmacy, um, you look down. Right? You're at the checkout counter. You look down. There are 400 different types of candy bars, and then you look up. You know, behind the cashier. And there's a whole wall of tobacco products. So, right, and then, you know, we have billboards advertising fruity alcohol, targeted, very targeted ads um, to youth, to people of color. If we if we as a society, if we're tolerating this sort of advertising, I think it just demonstrates how it, like, we, we're sort of, it's a, it's free range, uh, <laughs> Um, marketing, we we really have not done much at all to reel in um, the, these advertisements. And so it, it just it shows how willing we are to make as much money, let these different industries um, go nuts at the expense of regular people who are, who are being exploited. I call it bio exploitation. You look, I mean, we have natural proclivities. We we want. We evolved to find a hypercaloric food that's going to keep us, um, you know, fluffed up if, if there's a period of food scarcity. We will be drawn to a more hypercaloric food. Um, we're, we're drawn to, to, you know, mind-altering substances. Um, we're stressed out today, and so people are vulnerable, and they're going to they're going to buy that nicotine vape or or the, you know, the alcohol seltzer product, whatever it is. And the companies know that so well, right? If you think about, I mean, they're spending millions of dollars on advertising. Um, it's because it works. Each of those advertisements works really well or else they wouldn't waste their money on it. My favorite is when you have back-to-back -back ads for, for you know, a chronic disease drug, say for diabetes, um, even for autoimmune disease. And then immediately following that, you have a fast food advertisement, um, and then you might it might keep going. It's like a, right? It's like a carousel. And then the next one is for a weight loss drug, um, and then there's a soda Coca Cola ad with beautiful people um, who probably don't actually drink Coca Cola themselves. Uh, that's what we're dealing with. So I just wanted to make sure the listeners, I, I want you guys to see how severe this is. One more thing is that I, before med school, I got to work in as an organizer. We were a political organizer, so we were deep in, um, among others, environmental campaigns, and so I saw firsthand how desperate um, an industry is to save money or or not have to um, sort of account for their costs. For for instance, we were trying to get. Um, the soda industry to recycle a bit more, but they were going to have to pay another cent per bottle to facilitate that. And so they paid millions of dollars uh, <laughs> to, uh, to block that state legislation and they were successful. They said, mm, uh, it's not going to work for us. So let's just kill it. 
that's what this is what's happening as we speak and it's what we're up against but i do ultimately i'm optimistic that good reasonable people um can see through it and demand you know a different path forward yes i have some ideas about how we could change society's viewing of this whole issue here and uh, we still have you know a good hour of conversation here and uh, and towards the last a half hour, I want to talk about a more positive vision. So what do we do about this? How how could it change? I have some ideas. I know you do too as well. Uh, but uh, our lovely and effective host, uh, Chef AJ. Or yeah. Lisa, <laughs> um, this is fascinating, guys. I mean, people are really loving this. And you know what people are wondering is how how does this medical model that we currently have, which doesn't seem like it's changed much since you went to medical school, Dr. Clapper, really fail the patient as well as the doctor and even society? Indeed, you've said something profound. The, the current model where the patient comes in with uh, some complaint and the doctors are like, what is happening? What is the diagnosis? And we list all these uh, diagnostic uh, methods, uh, physical exams and scans and blood tests. Ah, we got the diagnosis. Okay, what's the treatment? And nowadays in modern medicine, it's either what drug you're going to put them on or what's what surgeon you refer them to. The vast majority uh, of uh, treatments are drugs or surgery. It's what, what I call pharmacosclerosis. That's into their brain. This is the only uh, uh, treatment pattern they're told to, uh, uh, to uh, utilize. And then the uh, and then you see them back in the clinic there. So diagnosis, treatment, drug surgery, goodbye. And food never enters into this. And uh, it used to a thousand years ago, hundreds of years ago, but now it's uh, drugs and surgery have become ascendant. And uh, and there's a lot of people making a lot of money because they work. And and thank heavens for drugs and thank heavens for surgery. And if I have uh, pneumonia, I want powerful antibiotics. And if I break my leg, I want a good orthopedic surgeon. There is a time and place for that. But in most physicians' heads, that's the entire uh, uh, scope of, of healing modalities available to us. And of course, we know that totally overlooks the underlying cause, as well as a, a wonderful world of delicious treatments, namely a, a whole food plant-based diet. So, um, so we're in this... The, this model and, and and young students are afraid to break out of it. They don't the, no one intellectually equips them to do that. Um, to to say that a plant-based diet can reverse these diseases challenges the intellectual model of the professors. Uh, that this these uh, these are all genetic diseases. You know, it's not the food; it's the genes. Um, it challenges their treatment models. It means you have to send your first your uh, patients to the dietitian as part of their initial visit. And it certainly challenges their financial model as we were applying. This is scary stuff. It shakes the foundations of the whole treatment model there. And so young doctors are not encouraged to uh, uh, consider this type of uh, uh, this type of therapy. And, and, and it really fails the patient because uh, it's not dealing with their underlying causes. They could cure these people. And it fails the doctor. Medicine becomes a dreary uh, ritual of watching your patient get worse and worse with increasing drugs. 
and it fails society that we have to spend these trillions of dollars uh, with for band-aid medicine just to control symptoms when we're not really getting to the cause. So you're right. It fails the patient, the doctor, and society. And uh, and it can't continue like this. Uh, change is needed. And that's why we're having this discussion. Uh, and the, the coming years hold the promise of some change. We'll, we'll get to those uh, uh, by the end of the conversation. That's great. Uh, Mm -hmm. oh, go, ahead. go ahead, Dr. Burns. I love your chipmunk picture there. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's better when you, you guys look better when you're next to each other. Mm. <laughs> so, I, yes, we promise we're going to get to the positives and everything that's happening mm. in this space. And it, I'm so encouraged. I'm just grateful to be part of this movement, which is taking off exponentially, this lifestyle medicine movement. But let, let's dwell a little bit on the problem for, for a moment, because you mentioned the drugs. It's only about one out of 10 drugs that are considered transformational. They actually make a difference in healthcare. So approximately nine out of 10 drugs are what we call marginally effective. So they have, they've been approved by the FDA. It used to be you didn't have to demonstrate efficacy at all in drug trials. Now, you know, somewhere along the line, they said, all right, if you're going to be charging or insurance coverage for these medications, they're so expensive, let's at least make sure they work a little bit. Okay, but the threshold to meet criteria for, for effectiveness of a new medication to get it covered by, to approved by the FDA is really low. It's kind of pathetic. <laughs> so that most drugs coming out, billions of dollars spent on developing these things, um, they don't work very well, um, to say the least. So I wanted to to shine some light on on the modern clinical trial, so that people can see how medical students and residents, how the next generation, become sort of indoctrinated with with the the, the pills and procedures model. Okay, it's we need to understand that. I've been there's a, a sort of family doc and um, pharma critic named Dr. John Abramson, who did a lot of this investigation. Um, he's been, you know, an expert litigator um, with big pharma settlements and everything for decades. So he's really seen the inside. And what essentially happens is a drug trial is funded by the maker of the drug, the manufacturer. So the purpose of the drug trial is to seek justification for selling the drug, right? It's, that's really at the end of the day. I mean, it, these, are, these are large companies with shareholders. They're looking to increase, just like doctors, we have a duty to our patients. They have a duty to their shareholders. Um, it would be weird if they didn't sort of take every step to to ensure that their shareholder value is increasing. So how do they do it? They're very sophisticated. They they decide a drug that's going to you know use, often it's a drug that is a chronic disease drug. So it may be indicated or, or you know prescribed by the doc for the patient to take daily or weekly indefinitely there's no stop date it's going to just keep going and that's a, that's one 
sort of criteria for a lucrative medicine. Um, so, that, so they decide which drug to kind of develop and test this way. Then they, then they design the trial and they design it in a way that's, you know, it, on paper, it looks like it's fair. Okay, it looks like it's objective, but inevitably they're, they're designing it and no one has much oversight. And so they're, they're doing that in a favorable way. So they, they identify a primary outcome Okay, percentage weight loss or decrease in the hemoglobin A1C for diabetes. Um, and But they, everything about how they conduct the trial, how they analyze the data, how they summarize the data, it's all done in a way that's favorable. It's, it's, it's a team. Sometimes they have academic affiliates, right, often. Um, and if you look at the conflict of interest statements in the trials for the new weight loss drugs or diabetes drugs, they're, they're, sometimes these are 100-page documents of the academic affiliates having been given plenty of cash for speaking fees, honoraria, um, and participation in the in the trials. So then, um, here's the here's the kicker, uh, and I'm almost done with this this summary here. You the trial goes the, the data. Um, the raw data is is done, right? So it's the end of the trial. And it's deemed proprietary by the drug company that sponsored the trial, and it's locked up. It, 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 that's private. It's for us, okay? And then a sec, a, the sort of industry vetted uh, data from the trial goes to, say, a medical society, the American Heart Association or a different society, the American Diabetes Association, um, for them to have sort of the vetted version of what happened in the trial so they can make their secondary analysis. So that the guidelines that are shaping medical care are, are made with, without, uh, without the primary data. Um, the, the information you could say is contaminated at its source. And then these guidelines uh, are, we, we're in, we in medicine are eager to to read about and adopt these guidelines so we can feel like we're doing well by the patients and, and being modern. Um, so a new guideline comes out, we jump on it, we scramble to um, prescribe the new medication for this you know, new onset heart, heart failure. Let's make sure we're doing this and that when they get discharged from the hospital. Um, or there might be a yesterday's medication that now has a new indication or, or official reason for use. So we jump on that. Oh, we can use this for kidney failure too. Let's do it. And that's that's the cycle. That's how people end up with one, two, 10, 20 drugs on their list, which is expensive, dangerous with the drug interactions and just kind of demoralizing. So I'll, I'll stop there. Yeah. Well, you know, Dr. Burns brings up, you know, very important points uh, when, and this is just in demonstrating uh, the efficiency of a drug. And, and often when you look at how many people were needed to treat, to show any effect, uh, you, you had to treat hundreds and hundreds of patients to get, to prevent one heart attack or one adverse uh, uh, outcome. Uh, you know, that's often built in and, and not uh, brought to the, uh, the public's attention. But what I find the other side of this, uh, the you know, this one way you can skew the results of a fairly quote well-designed uh, 
uh, drug effectiveness study. But when but when I give lectures to medical schools and to medical students, uh, almost inevitably there are, uh, there's a few professors in the back of the room listening to my talk about plant-based diet reversing disease, and they're standing there with their arms folded and their heads negatively moving. Uh, and at the end, they say, well, well, this is all speculative. I, I want you to show me 15 double-blind placebo-controlled uh, studies demonstrating beyond doubt that broccoli is healthier than Snickers bars. Until you can bring me those 15 studies, this is all theoretical uh, vegan propaganda. And uh, and they can hide behind the uh, this uh, bastion of uh, show me the proof. Uh, but you know it's becoming evident that when you're talking nutrition, uh, you can't design one of these studies that they're demanding. With when you're looking to see if a drug is effective, you can come up with a placebo drug that's inactive, give it to patients who don't know what they're taking uh, for a short period of time to see the effect. But when it comes to food, each each piece of broccoli contains hundreds and thousands of phytochemicals that interact with each other. And the point is, people know what they're eating. You can't double blind these studies. Uh, and people don't eat the same thing day after day after day. And you'd have to follow these people for 20 years, for 50 years to see their eventual cause of death. It's an unreal demand they're making, you know, show me uh, these double-blind placebo-controlled studies. And they can sit perched on their temple of negativity. But it's unfair. You know, when you look at the uh, uh, the people who live the longest, it's clearly uh, the folks uh, who eat plant-based diets to fewer diseases that eventually kills them. Uh, and uh, uh, we need to level the playing field there. And we need to fortify the students with an understanding that nutrition is, is, is a unique field when it comes to scientific proof. Not saying that there isn't a lot to learn about it, uh, but you got to look at what you know large population of folks are really eating. Uh, and then the cynics will say, ah, these population studies, they're merely associations. They don't prove causation. Uh, and, and it often doesn't progress further than that, which is really sad because it, again, uh, lets people stand on uh, their, their current uh, approach and, and not explore uh, the, the avenues that really might reverse these diseases. The whole concept of disease reversal there, there is alien to many of them. But again, uh, these are eminently reversible diseases. We'll talk about that. But what an exciting message to instill in the heads and hearts of these young students. You can reverse hypertension. You can reverse type 2 diabetes. You can reverse lupus. You can reverse clogged arteries. I wish someone had told me this in medical school. And uh, this is what we are doing through Moving Medicine Forward is telling the students these are reversible diseases. And a plant-based diet is the key uh, to reversing this worth learning about. Anyway, I don't want to monopolize the situation, the conversation, uh, but uh, what you mentioned about drug studies, uh, that it's got this big, ugly relative of the nutrition studies that, uh, uh, that uh, it's an important player in the, uh, in, the, uh, in the logic game here, but we shouldn't let it be an obstacle. And I'll add that, so there's, there's this distinction, right, between observational and experimental data that Dr. Clapper is referring to. And so the observational the population studies, you look back, you see what people were doing over time and whether they ended up with a disease or getting sick when they died and how. But 
um, it, and, and lo logically, in terms of the statistical analysis, you can't, as you said, you can't determine causality. So it's just an association. But that said, we have massive amounts of observational data in the nurses' health study and the Adventist health study. We have, I mean, just millions of, of collective years of people's lives that we've analyzed pretty meticulously. And as you know better than anyone, the, the, the role of plant-based nutrition in preventing and reversing disease is very well documented. And then there's an increasing body of what we call experimental evidence, which is the, the you know, the, the blind, um, double blind um, controlled trial that's, that's sort of the gold standard for evidence. And there's more and more of this happening, but it is difficult to fund because there's no, there's no money in, you know, plums and carrots. Um, whereas to fund a, a clinical trial for a new medication is a, is a massive financial opportunity. Indeed. Speaking of financial opportunities, off of one of your slides that you give in your talks, uh, Dr. Burns, it says uh, health agencies prefer the, the current uh, status quo. Now, the American Heart Association is sponsored by Coca-Cola and the Texas Beef Association. Check that, guys. Uh, the American Heart Association is sponsored by Coca-Cola and the Texas Beef Association. The American Cancer Society is sponsored by Tyson, Purdue Chicken, and Hormel, the maker of Spam. Uh, could there be a, a conflict of interest there? Hmm. Yeah, and it's, it's again, it's hard not to be cynical, but it's, it can't be a, an insurmountable barrier. Uh, we the the truth is the truth, and we need to reach these students uh, and the public with with the with the truth of the situation because we're they're tired of being sick and tired, and uh, uh, there's much that can be done. And when we hit the bottom of this hour here, I want to shift into, so what do we do about all this uh, gear? Uh, we'll talk about further work there. But what else? Have, have you noticed anything on the nutrition frustration frontier here that we were both toiling in? Well, just to highlight the spam. So when I give this talk to some of my colleagues, not everyone grew up with spam. It's sort of an older generation thing. But for anyone listening, um, you youngins, Spam is basically processed red meat in a can, in like a sardine can, I think, or it's a jar. Anyway, it's processed red meat. We have the, the World Health Association, the World Health Organization, WHO, has said very conclusively that processed red meat is a type 1A carcinogen. So that's the same level of evidence we have that cigarettes are carcinogenic. And yet we have this processed red meat company providing an annual generous donation to the American Cancer Society. That doesn't seem appropriate. So, you know, is it any wonder that some of these medical societies and organizations aren't very vocal about what we need to do in terms of nutrition? Um, they, they have these really powerful incentives to kind of hush up about um, <laughs> the, the the data we actually have, um, and it's all right. It's like I think it's uh, these these industries are our buddies, and this, this is how it works. But I do, you know, I think people are getting the picture and um, seeing that because with lifestyle medicine blossoming like this, we're starting to see 
um, patients get better and heal from the inside out. And people love that, right? Medical professionals are so um, satisfied, gratified to, to help guide a patient through that process. Okay, so let me uh, let me uh, put a summary statement or two here up, and then let's uh, funnel it into uh, making things better. Um, so the question, why doesn't my doctor know anything about nutrition? One, um, it's not in the medical curriculum. We're not taught anything about it. Um, the uh, doctors are not paid um, to do nutrition counseling. They don't have time to do nutrition counseling. And the dietitian has been a, an afterthought. Uh, she's been a, or he has been a peripheral player here after you do the diagnosis and the treatment and the surgery and send them to the dietitian if they're overweight. But it's, uh, uh, the dietitian has been an afterthought uh, as far as the medical model goes. Um, we are saying that one doctor recognized that the, the odds are that no matter what your patient came to see you for in whatever specialty you're in, from pediatrics to emergency medicine to anesthesia, obstetrics, uh, orthopedics, the patient sitting in front of you is likely overweight, diabetic, hypertensive, clogged up and inflamed, have some uh, aspect of those conditions in their body. Uh, and it's from what they're eating. And uh, they won't, their head won't explode if you sit down and, and talk to them about your concerns uh, and that you'd like to uh, send them before they leave to see the plant-based dietitian who will talk to them about uh, what, to, uh, what to shop for, give you a handout, show you videos. And you see the patient back in a month there and see if they're not leaner and healthy after a month on a plant-based diet. We need to change the medical model. If this was, if the, and we got to talk about changing medical education and the, and the, and the uh, reimbursement system, yes. We've got to talk about the preparing the public to accept this, to in fact demand it. Uh, and there's a, there would be ways to do that as well. And I want to, uh, to talk about that. But uh, in that first section, as far as uh, re reaching the medical, how we change the medical profession, because Dr. Burns and I are, are waist deep in the medical mo medical model in that medical world. You know, what is required to, um, uh, to change the uh, medical education? So every graduating student knows that he ran into it in an anatomy class in the first year when they uh, when we studied the digestive system and, and muscle physiology. In second year, when we studied biochemistry and diseases and pathology, Crohn's disease, colitis, uh, nutrition played a role there. And in every uh, rotation in the last two years when you go to internal medicine and surgery and pediatrics. Uh, and every one, the uh, patient's diet uh, has to be discussed by the professors. You could infiltrate, inculcate uh, applied nutrition in all four years of med school. So when that young doctor graduates, she or he knows that yes, you know, you need medications to start controlling blood pressure, but the most important thing is what are they eating? How can we change their basic physiology and biochemistry uh, via a plant-based uh, food stream uh, to let those arteries relax and that blood pressure come down and the insulin receptors unclog uh, and, uh, and uh, excess weight shed and the patient develops a lean, healthy body that doesn't need a bunch of pills and potions. What if every doctor knew that from their four years of medical training? That's what that's the 
promised land that we're trying to uh, uh, trying to get to. So every young doctor is nutritionally aware. Now, how do we do that? Um, because the establishment doesn't want to hear this message. It's threatening to them intellectually. It's threatening to them practice-wise, threatening to them financially. They, well, they don't want to hear this. But the students do. And it's turning out that in every medical school class, there's now 20 or 30 students that are either enrolled in lifestyle medicine program as, as students or residents, but they've also seen movies like Forks Over Knives and What the Health and Cowspiracy and The Game Changer. The light's already on and you can't put the genie back in the bottle. And those are the students that we want to reach and say, yes, those of you who've, who've had even a flicker of understanding that it's a, you're all treating nutrition-based diseases um, and these are reversible diseases, uh, those who have any understanding, those ones I want to reach uh, with our with the lectures we give called What I Wish I Learned in Medical School About Nutrition, as well as Mechanisms of Disease Reversal Through Plant-Based Nutrition. I want to get these understandings into the minds and hearts of these students with, the, um, uh, with the, our lectures and our websites. And that's what the idea behind moving medicine forward is. <clears throat> when when I saw the power of reversing disease through a plant-based diet, I was thinking somebody ought to reach the medical students with this message before pharmacosclerosis sets into their brain. And a little voice on my shoulder says, somebody, huh? How about you, doc? And uh, that was almost four years ago. And I've been spending these years going to medical schools, uh, giving this lecture, inviting people to see them on my website. <clears throat> um, so uh, Dr. Burns and I are trying to uh, light nutritional bonfires in the minds and medical school classes of uh, students around the country. And slowly we're starting to uh, succeed and uh, more and more students are aware of the, uh, of the power of plant-based nutrition to reverse disease. And we want to also help the public start demanding it from their doctors. We'll tell you more about that in a minute. But I just want to uh, get Dr. Burns' reflection on, uh, on how to start reaching the medical schools, the, the hospitals, what they serve in the cafeterias, what they send up to the patients' rooms, what's served in the lobby when people walk into the hospital. There's so many places where improving the food offering uh, would have such profound effects. Uh, how do you view it, Dr. Burns? Uh, how do things look uh, at Providence and other hospitals, especially in your contemporary colleagues there? Sure, well, to paint the picture, so many viewers will be familiar with the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, who's become the hub for, for, for promoting this, um, this critical um, field of medicine. And they have a couple programs related to medical education. One is the Lifestyle Medicine Interest Group, which is for med students. Okay, but it's extracurricular. It's still really important. And they have, uh, have full-time staff through the organization. There's central support for continuity with a lot of student turnover. So that's, it, it's really well done. Um, and they also have a lifestyle uh, lifestyle medicine in the residency program curriculum, the LMRC. So 
What's exciting for me is Dr. Clapper and I were recently at the ACLM conference and we got the fresh statistics. So at this point, there are over 150 lifestyle medicine interest groups at med schools around the world, med and health professional schools. And in terms of the residency curriculum, there are over 300 residencies that have adopted it. When I was applying to residency, it's only three years ago, but there were about 10. So we went from 10 to 300 um, residency curricula. That um, is certainly exponential. And it suggests that this is catching on. So I like the nutritional bonfire metaphor. I mean, this, this is blown up because it has to. There's no other way. Um, so we, we, we really cherish the ACLM. We also, there's so much work in this arena that there's room for other organizations. And so Moving Medicine Forward has its own niche. And, and so Dr. Clapper has been going around and speaking with medical students around the world, mostly in the US and Canada, but really everywhere um, to, get, to get people fired up about this. So last year, he spoke to around 50 uh, medical schools. And then there's follow-up activity. And so like when you're here at Brown, we, we, we've been doing different things with the med students and the residency program since. Um, we just had some people to our local plant-based jumpstart some med students came and um, some more came to our shop with the doc where we take patients around the grocery store and point out some healthy items and do some kind of basic nutrition education where it counts in the grocery store. So these are some areas where moving medicine forward um, is, is filling the void. Uh, yes, some powerful uh, slogans came to mind when you were speaking. Um, uh, earlier, uh, with the resistance that we were talking about, uh, it was Upton Sinclair said, it's difficult to uh, discuss a new truth with a man whose paycheck depends upon them not seeing that new truth. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and that's the, a lot of what's behind the resistance here that we just have to honor. It's, it's difficult when you're uh, locked into a system that wants you to keep doing things in an old, uh, destructive way. Uh, but Victor Hugo said that um, invading armies may be resisted, but not an idea whose time has come. Uh, and lifestyle medicine gets to the root of these problems. These are lifestyle diseases. It's what people are eating. It's how they're conducting their lives, what they're smoking, what they're drinking, they're not exercising. This is the root of the of the majority of these diseases. And you've got to, uh, to honestly recognize that. Uh, and... Uh, when people hear that we're in lifestyle medicine, they say, oh, that's all that's California woo-woo stuff. No doctor is the most powerful medical practice of all because it gets to the cause of these diseases and reverse them. And you get to see these remarkable uh, disease reversal processes. So right before your eyes, the patient gets healthier uh, and the doctor gets to uh, document it in, in a most dramatic way. It's 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 revolutionize the, the practice of medicine. It doesn't cost anything. We're not talking about expensive uh, therapies here. We're talking about uh, eating uh, tofu lasagna and bean chilies and, uh, and, and yeah, lovely Indian curries. Um, the, the food is the, uh, is the real hero here. And so 
what would it take uh, to really start changing things? So as, as we're saying, we're going right to the students and like Johnny Appleseed we're, with these lectures, we're just planting the seeds in the minds and hearts of these young students. Uh, it's the food your patients are eating. These are reversible diseases and a plant-based diet is the key to reversing these diseases. I want that very clear uh, in the minds of, of these students. That, uh, that as they go from clinic to clinic, the diabetes clinic, hypertension clinic, they ask their professors, do you think what our patients are eating could be improved? Do you think it's playing a role in these diseases? Um, so we're planting those seeds so the, uh, the understanding is at least there. And I tell the students, don't make a lot of political waves when you're in your school and residency, but when you're out in practice on your own, Practice medicine with a nutritional bent to it, with a, emphasizing plant-based nutrition, uh, and you'll see these remarkable results as well. So one, just, just putting these ideas in the minds and hearts of the medical students, I, I think are effective. It's how you get to be general acceptance of anything. You know, we used to do all sorts of things in this country. We used to harpoon whales in the head. We used to buy and sell people. We used to do all, do all sorts of things that make us say, oh my heavens, I can't believe we used to do that. Well, raising and slaughtering 80 billion living creatures and eating their flesh uh, could well become one of those things that I can't believe we used to do that. And that's where it would help to get the um, uh, the public understanding, and there's lots of uh, there's lots of confusion now, and oh, the carnivore diet, the paleo diet, and and people will improve initially on some of these diets because they stop eating a lot of the processed foods and the fats and the oils, etc. But these are not diets of long term health. Uh, packing your intestine full of meat three times a day is a recipe for colon cancer and dementia and heart attacks and strokes and colitis and autoimmune disease. Uh, uh, the reasons are on my website there. Uh, these are not healthy ways to eat. We are plant-based hominids, uh, just like our gorilla cousins who don't develop these diseases. So what would it take? Could be done. Uh, we, Dr. Burns mentioned the successful anti-smoking when I grew up, uh, in a smoking campaign, when I grew up, uh, every fourth person in America would, would light up. You could smoke on airplanes. You could smoke in restaurants. And and we and societies turn that ocean liners and, and onto a different course. No, that's not cool anymore. And you don't light up in an airplane. You don't light up in a restaurant now. Well, what would it take uh, if the truth came out about the meat and the dairy and the oils and the current standard American diet? What if the, if you got uh, movie stars uh, uh, appearing on highway billboards, uh, you know, three times an hour? What if there were uh, public service commercials on TV twice an hour, uh, showing all these wonderful plant-based recipes, showing what happens in the bloodstream after you eat a cheeseburger, um, make meat eating as as uncool as smoking cigarettes? Um, so uh, when people uh, are in a restaurant and they order a steak, uh, the response becomes, man, are you still eating that stuff? Don't you know what that does to the uh, to your arteries, what it does to the planet? Uh, to make uh, eating meat as uncool as wearing a big fur stole, you know, you don't really do that these days. Well, eating animal flesh and all the 
uh, things that it does to the planet to get that piece of meat and you plate there. Uh, it becomes one of those things. What the sports stars, what if LeBron James and and uh, Travis Kelsey, all, I used to eat meat. I don't need to do that anymore. And I feel better because, of, you, know, what, you know, if this was sponsoring TV shows and specials, soon people would be talking about it. And it would just be accepted. Well, that's the way it is now. You know, like, like no, and you don't see people smoking anymore. You don't see people eating animal flesh anymore. Could be done. And, but it, uh, people need to recognize the power they have when you're pushing that supermarket cart down the aisle. If you don't put the, the whatever project it is, if you don't put it into your basket and pay for it, the, the, it'll, they'll stop producing it. And if people stop buying the meat and eating it, um, the, something else will appear there. They'll be much healthier, I, I guarantee it. Um, so the public could be changed. We need some real the far-sighted civic visionaries and some courageous celebrities and influencers uh, to really pull society towards the, the plant-based side. Uh, and uh, in medical schools, we need uh, visionaries um, to keep asking that question, those questions, to wield that sword of truth. Doctor, um, patients who uh, adopt a plant-based diet reverse their diseases. How, how can we incorporate that? And to use the example of these pioneering physicians, Dr. Michelle McMacken at Bellevue Hospital in New York is running a plant-based disease reversal clinic. I now know plant-based cardiologists, plant-based rheumatologists, plant-based gastroenterologists. There's getting to be more and more of them. You meet them at the ACLM meetings. You meet them at the Plantrition Project meetings. Uh, it's happening, people. Despair not, but start becoming an active participant. Start with your own diet. And I tell the med students and the doctors, start with what you're eating. What's, what's dinner tonight? You can't. Uh, preach a healthy diet and go home and eat a big double cheese pizza and a, or, a, or a, a greasy burger there. So set a good example uh, and start incorporating it into your practices. Uh, and uh, without making a lot of political waves, as the Nike commercial says, just do it. Uh, and, and suddenly it becomes, instead of this big, huge obstacle, it shrinks down to size. This is all doable. It's just food and money. Uh, and we can change it. We have power over it. It doesn't cost a thing to order the bean chili instead of the beef chili. That's really all we're talking about here. That would make all the difference in the world. Um, so, yes, there's the public that could be changed with public relations campaign. There's the medical profession that could be changed. That's what Dr. Burns and I are working to do. If you want to learn more about what we're doing, um, uh, the organization is called Moving Me Medicine Forward, and I'm sure uh, Chef AJ will put the uh, the link up for us here. But, yes. Uh, our, great. But our website is uh, Moving Med Forward there, so people don't get confused. I'll uh, uh, put it up here, .com, and we are a 501c3 uh, organization. Uh, you can help us. We could sure use the help. I want to reach even more medical schools this year. Uh, and uh, it's this, the coal face we're working at here. Uh, and every lecture we give, every young medical mind we, we put the plant-based idea into uh, is one more doctor uh, who I hope, uh, you know, my goal is for every doctor at every visit 
before the patient, no matter what they came in for, a hangnail, a cold, uh, uh, a cut on their finger, as the patient's leaving. By the way, Joe, by the way, Mary, how's your plant-based diet going that we talked about? Uh, I went plant-based a few years ago. I feel great. How about you? You need to see the dietitian. You need a health coach. How can I help you with your plant-based transition? What if every doctor said that to every patient at every visit? You know, what, what a different world this would be. That's the one we're trying to create. So I'm very appreciative to Dr. Burns, certainly, and then Chef AJ for letting us get this very important message out. Absolutely. You know, you had mentioned about a conflict of interest. Do you think the fact that pharmaceutical companies, I don't want to say control, but influence the uh, curriculum of medical schools have anything to do with this? Hmm. That birds, and you say, of course, uh, you know, they're making a lot of money selling these drugs. And, uh, and, and it's just told, you know, we're, we're told all you can do is control. We're talking about manage their chronic disease, manage their diabetes, we'll manage your high blood pressure, manage your Crohn's disease just by suppressing these symptoms and just helping the patient limp from day to day. And of course, the, these are very expensive drugs to, to do that. Uh, and that's uh, don't even think about cure. These are incurable diseases. We don't understand the cause. Etiology unknown. The smart researchers are working about it, uh, working on it. When they understand it, they'll let you know about it. Meanwhile, these are uh, non-reversible diseases. You just control their symptoms uh, and prescribe these drugs, and that's the best you can do. And if you don't put them on statins and anti-inflammatories, you you may be legally liable here. So just be a good little doctor. Prescribe these medications, and uh, and you'll uh, you'll be well rewarded come tax time. Um, it's a cynical. Yeah a way to practice medicine, no doubt. Dr. Burns. And remember that none of us went through pre-med and medical school and residency only to become drug dealers. Uh, we'd, we'd rather help people out. And um, so so really, like it's, we, we never wanted to be these distributors of pharmaceutical products. We wanted to, you know, be, be doctors and, you know, and have, you know, like a really a nuanced sense of what's going on with the patient, make the diagnosis and do our best and partner with them to help them out. I have um, a couple of big picture observations I wanted to share. One is that behavior change is really hard, right? And following others, my, this is sort of related to something I've read about. But so death, right? Death, we fear death. Um, more than perhaps anything else. It's sort of, it's the, it's the, we will cease to exist. And when you fear death like that, you build up some, some mechanisms, some sort of defense mechanisms. And one of them, I think, is culture and identity. And so we, all these, who we are and who, how we perceive ourselves, the, the, collectively, the cultures we create, these are all ways in which we sort of avert death or, or like, uh, uh, find meaning, but also kind of put, put death out of our minds and mortality. And so if a behavior change, like going plant-based conflicts with one's identity or one's culture, then it's essentially life-threatening. That's the perception. It is powerfully threatening for that person. So we have to recognize that and figure out how to sculpt uh, healthier identities of, and, and, and be sensitive to cultures and find, I mean, there's a whole subfield 
in plant-based cooking and nutrition where you can make tweaks um, to ethnic cuisine and, and retain the flavor and the, the feeling of it, the tradition, but you can make it infinitely healthier. So, so we do, I think we do have to recognize the, power, the importance of people's identities and cultures, work with them. But, you know, and I think one of the ways we can, we can shape the culture is, as you said, to be role models, like Dr. Clapper and Chef AJ, they're getting this message out all the time. If we can, you know, but everyone, everyone can make some personal changes and, and people notice, don't underestimate your ripple effect. Um, people do notice and quietly uh, when they're not pushed and nudged, they, they will make the change, um, right? Once they're sufficiently aggravated by the status quo. Well said. And in my other, one more big picture observation is that one might think, well, these guys, you know, it, like for example, myself, Zach went vegan first. So is this all just sort of a way to rationalize his animal welfare interests? And I think that's that's fair to to have that to to ask that question. And I've thought about it a lot. And and no, so the answer is that it's not a coincidence that a a system that's devastating for animals, uh, that's devastating for the environment, is also devastating for human health. It, 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 there's actually, it's part of the same problem. There's, there's no, it's the other side of the same coin. Um, when you have, when you're mass producing animals and remember 96% of um, mammalian biomass on the planet are humans, cats, dogs, and our, and our food animals. Um, only 4% of mammals on the planet left are wild. When you have that kind of ecological situation, it's no wonder that the, the nutrition profile of of those meat, dairy, or egg products will plummet. It's it's no longer healthy. You're mass producing it. It's not. This is not a thousand years ago. Subsistence fishing, you know, whatever. Like that was a different. I think we need to think about whether we can justify eating certain foods in the context of 2024. Happy New Year. Um, let's, I mean, this is, times change. And, you know, so we, so the, the nutrition profile of these foods and, and the, the quantity of these animal products that we consume, also in the context of hyper-processing, of everything, the bun and the mayonnaise and the, everything surrounding this animal product. And remember the animal products themselves are processed. Um, they're certainly a processed food. Um, everything that's happening to that product before it lands on the plate. And so it's no wonder that uh, a, a moral and ecological calamity is also such a disruption to, to human health and, and it has created this pr prevalence of chronic disease that we see. And so that's, that's how I see it. And if, you know, if we can work on plant-based nutrition, we'll have an outsized impact on all of those, those big three issues, 
not to mention human labor issues in the industrial facilities, uh, all sorts, you know, environmental um, racism, like all sorts of issues that come out of, of industrial livestock production. We're gonna, we're gonna solve them all at once when we phase out this model and, and, and create you know, a society of herbivores. Amen. Well Amen. Well said. And um, uh, just to put a bow on uh, some of the points Dr. Burns made, um, uh, the food is key, uh, obviously, and the culture certainly plays a role. It helps if you have supportive people at home or in your friend, your circle of friends. But if you don't, uh, if there, if you are in any ethnic group, Asians, Hispanic, whatever, you have, all these ethnic groups have a long history of plant-based cuisine and all the curries and noodle dishes and, and uh, uh, plant-based soups and stews, etc. Uh, if you look in your own cultural history, uh, you'll, you'll find a rich, nourishing uh, plant-based cuisine and uh, have fun with it and, and share it with the people around you. Um, the... I just want to, to give a big uh, hats off and a commendation uh, to Chef AJ uh, for, for her service in, in two brilliant fronts. Because one, you know, the food is key. Uh, if, you, if you put a, a, a delicious bean chili or a tofu lasagna in someone's mouth and say, oh, if that's vegan food, I could eat that. Oh, that's delicious. You've changed their lives. So this, the delicious tasting food is the key to helping people make this essential transition. And Chef AJ does what she does, is shows you how to make simple, elegant, wonderful food that when you put it in your mouth makes you say, oh, that's delicious. But also, this we're really talking about education. This is an educational issue. We've got enough science right now. We know plant-based diets are healthy. It's a matter of, of getting this message out to the public, making it acceptable, making it everyday understanding and language, making it no big deal, getting it into the currency of modern life and understanding. And AJ does that so brilliantly in her heart. And you know, with Charles' help there, they do the podcasts and they do the, uh, the, the wonderful Instagram posts, et cetera. And she's helping to change society. You know, there's a saying, you know, do when you're feeling overwhelmed, you know, do what you can where you are with what you've got. And AJ and all her colleagues are great examples down in the trenches doing exactly that. They're doing what they can, where they are, with what they've got. And it's making a difference. It's changing society. They actually have the two of us out here to talk about this. But I just, she's such a great example. So everybody who's watching here, you can do something like this in your own life. Just start by eating healthy making great food, sharing it with people, talking positively about it, um, educating yourself, see videos like Forks Over Knives and What the Health if you haven't seen it, and, uh, and help educate your doctor. To, to go to Dr. McDougall's website. He's got a wonderful eight-page handout on transitioning to a plant-based diet. Uh, Follow that, but bring it to your doctor and say, I've been following this. Do you want to share with your other patients? There's uh, Doctors are looking for this information, whether they know it or not. There's a lot each individual listener can do uh, in their own lives. And the example we set and 
And again, I commend AJ for uh, for doing this magnificent job and Charles uh, where they are with what they've got. They're they're helping change society, and uh, it's an honor to have them as uh, as friends and colleagues here. Big big hats off. Uh, and thank you. Absolutely. And then Dr. Burns, uh, it's not easy. A third year family practice, brother. He's, he's up to his eyeballs in call schedules and emergencies down the ER. And yet his, his, his spirit is burning. He knows, uh, as we're speaking here, the hundreds of millions of animals in those nameless sheds out in the countrysides that are suffering near the cows and pigs and chickens. He knows what's happening in the arteries and the guts of people who are eating uh, these uh, fish-based diets. And he sees the forest disappearing like I do, and he grieves for our ecological future. So he's doing what he can, where he is with what he's got. And uh, he's willing to pick up that torch. So I go to bed at night saying, thank heavens for Dr. Birds and AJ and, and all of us who are trying to spread this uh, uh, this very, very important knowledge around here. So it starts with your next healthy plant-based meal. Let it become the standard and the, the average in your life and it'll hopefully become the standard and the average in, in everybody's lives here. So um, Dr. Burns, have any uh, uh, concluding thoughts here that I wanna share? Well, on our first call, you and I, in 2019 or so, you said, are you prepared for, you know what you're getting into, right? You said, we're <laughs> hacking at the ankles of giants. And we are. Um, and I, it's been my absolute pleasure. And so, you know, Dr. Clapper, of course, is, a, he, he showed me how to, that you can, is this sort of model for how you can practice medicine in a sincere way that aligns with your values and um, that helps people, you know, like where you can actually, I think, do the job appropriately. So thank you for that. And of course, Chef AJ, because your channel is like my primary source of not only inspiration, but entertainment, seeing all these incredible uh, creations come out of different people's kitchens. Thank you so much. You, it's, you know, we always wondered who's going to fill Dr. Clapper's shoes. So now we know. Now you know. <laughs> Thank goodness. Not, I mean, you're irreplaceable, but it's so nice to see that a younger generation is being inspired by your work. And people are so excited you'll be coming on. There was a million medical questions, but we'll get to them next month because they're coming uh, back. Yes, they have a regular slot uh, in the Chef AJ right. Broadcasting Network as they will be moving medicine forward. The link is below in the chat in the show notes. If you ever want to make a donation, that would be really wonderful because they need your support to continue their wonderful work. And Dr. Clapper, if people are affiliated with a medical school for some reason, th they could invite you to speak, right? Yes, please. On our Moving Med Forward website, there's a, there's a panel there saying if you know a medical student, if you know a faculty member, a surgical professor, someone who's on this faculty of any medical school, and you think they might be open to considering having me come in either in person or by Zoom or Dr. Burns, yes, uh, give us their name and we will contact them. Your donations help us have, have helped us hire the people who will reach out and connect with those folks. So yes, please give them their names and well, it's a great way to get uh, into the schools in front of the medical audiences. You know, there's two medical school near me and Dr. Rosen Alviera speaks to them. I'm going to ask her about those. And also, are you guys on Amazon Smile? Because so many people already shop on Amazon. And if you can sign up for Amazon Smile, those few pennies can add up. 
Thank you. No, we hadn't been, but that's yeah. a brilliant idea. Thank you for that. I appreciate Absolutely. it. I'm an, I'm an idea person. Well, guys, it was really wonderful seeing you. And we look forward to having you back next month. Great. Thank you so much. Same Thank you, Dr. Clapper. Thank you, Dr. Burns. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow at 9 a.m. Pacific time for Dr. Peter Rogers. He's going to talk about diabetes for beginners, meaning how to avoid it. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.